This week, uh, we're going to continue our series, Living the Gospel, as we, as we journey through the book of John. Today, we're in John chapter 6. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 15. Last week, Victor brought the word, and we were in John 9, and we saw how God brings healing, not always on our schedule and timeline, and sometimes the healing we receive is the healing that we will experience in eternity with him. But we saw that God loves us, that he takes care of us, and that is largely the theme for this morning as well. As we look to live the gospel, so much of that is resting in what God has done for us. This week we'll be looking at the famous story of the time that Jesus fed the 5,000. The text is John chapter 6, as we said, verses 1 through 15. And if you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to flip there now. There's a Bible in the pew in front of you if you'd prefer that. Or you can just read along as the words will be up on the screen. We read the word of the Lord this morning, John chapter 6, 1 through 15. Sometime after this, Jesus crossed to the far shore of the Sea of Galilee, that is, the Sea of Tiberias. And a great crowd of people followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. Then Jesus went up to a mountainside and sat down with his disciples. The Jewish Passover festival was near. When Jesus looked up and saw a great crowd coming towards him, he said to Philip, Where shall we buy bread for these people to eat? He asked this only to test him, for he already had in mind what he was going to do. Philip answered him, It would take more than half a year's wages to buy enough bread for each one to have a bite. Another of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. Here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish. But how far will they go among so many? Jesus said, Have the people sit down. There was plenty of grass in that place. And they sat down, about 5,000 men were there. Jesus then took the loaves, gave thanks, and distributed to those who were seated as much as they wanted. He did the same with the fish. When they all had enough to eat, he said to his disciples, Gather the pieces that are left over, let nothing be wasted. So they gathered them and filled twelve baskets with the pieces of the five barley loaves left over by those who had eaten. After the people saw the sign Jesus performed, they began to say, Surely this is the prophet who has come into the world. Jesus, knowing that they intended him to come, intended to come and make him king by force, withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Thus ends the reading. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word, for your word is truth. God, I pray that you would speak through your word this morning, that you would perform the miracle that feeds our souls. We pray this in your name. Amen. So, I'm known for a few things in our house, and one of them is my superpower. In the Stenberg house, I'm the one that can find things. When a Lego man is lost, or a gaming controller can't be found, maybe a shoe has gone missing, or that favorite toy has disappeared, when the boys have exhausted their ability to find the item that they have been searching for, they call in the big guns. They call in Dad. Now, admittedly, there are some limitations to my superpower. These powers do not extend to the kitchen or the fridge. 
Items in those two black holes are nearly impossible for me to find unless I am given a hand-drawn map and very specific instructions, and even then, I can't promise anything. The other areas of weakness is that I find that when I myself have been the one who possibly, maybe, am the one who misplaced the lost item. Television remotes and my hats and all too often my keys are frustratingly exempt from my superpower. But hey, if a power worked every time, it probably wouldn't be as exciting, right? And just as every superpower has its area of weakness, so they all have an origin story, and mine began back in May 17th, 1994. My dad was pastoring in Hagen, Saskatchewan, Canada at the time, and I was in the fifth grade. Now, this area of, of, of Canada had a pretty heavy Norwegian heritage, and so when Sutnamai, the 17th of May, the Norwegian Independence Day, rolled around, it was a pretty big deal. One element of the celebration was that the Norwegian kids in town would dress up in their Scandinavian finest and sing the Norwegian national anthem at the stage in the high school gym. There would be different Norske delicacies available for sampling, and it was just a fun overall evening. And so, being of Norwegian heritage ourselves, the Stenberg family would get involved. I remember my mom had these little boxes of jewelry for the girls. It would only come out on, on the soot and the mai, and she'd, she'd take it out, and you know, they'd, they'd, they'd pin, it on, pin it on the girls. The older girls had the, the fanciest clip-on earrings that I ever did see. And then there were these little brooches for some of the younger girls. They had little decorations hanging from them to, to catch the light. They were very pretty. So the girls would walk around in their dresses and jewelry, and I would walk around in what would most accurately be described as a sailor's uniform. But it was pretty snazzy. You know, it was, it was a good look back in 1995. After we had sung the song, we, we got to run the halls, and this was probably my favorite part as a kid. Our school was in Birch Hills, Saskatchewan. It was a small farming community, and so the K-12 was all in one building. We were all in elementary school at that time, and so we could look down the long hallway that connected the school and see you know, like the giant high schoolers in the distance, right? It's like during school when you're going between classes, it was like, ah, oh, they're huge. I don't ever want to go down there. It was kind of scary. But you also were like kind of curious, like, what's it like? What's it like on the, on the other side of the school? And so on the Sutnamai, we got to experience that. We would run all over the place while our parents visited with their friends, tearing up and down hallways and seeing if we could get into any of the rooms. And then it was time to go, and it was at that time that my mom noticed that one of my sisters was only wearing one earring. The other one had fallen off during our time of play. The halls of the school were carpeted, and the carpets were like this really ugly, mottled light brown. How are we going to find this one little earring camouflaged against the carpet? We didn't even know where to start the search. And they had to lock the doors soon. School would be taking place in the morning. So if we didn't find the earring tonight, it would be crushed beneath a high schooler's shoe or lost to the vacuum cleaner of the janitor. My mother was upset, my sisters were crying, and I was sent alone into the halls of the high school to find the lost earring. It wasn't looking good. How in the world was I supposed to find that one little piece of jewelry? It could be anywhere, and I 
I didn't even know where to start. The fate of my sister and that earring looked pretty hopeless. But that ordeal was nothing compared to the situation facing the disciples as Jesus looked up and saw a massive crowd that had been following them, seeking them out, and now had finally caught up to them. He turns to Philip and asks him where they will find enough food to feed all the people. Now, our text points out that Jesus is being a bit sly here. For he already knows how he's going to answer the problem that he's raised. But he wants to know how the disciples will respond. Philip turns incredulous eyes upon his teacher and friend and says, Bro, dude, it would, it would take more than six months' wages just to give everyone a bite of food. Where are we going to get that money? Where are we going to find that much food at one time and in one place? What are you even talking about? How is this even possible? And we can, we can relate to Philip in that moment, right? How is Jesus expecting him to have the answer for this particular problem? You want to know how we're going to feed this many people? Simple. We don't. Let them figure it out. We don't have the money or the time or the energy to waste on figuring out all of their problems. This is an impossible task. Forget it and and let's move on. And sometimes that's how we feel in life and in ministry, right? God, we're, we're a small little congregation. We're just trying to keep the doors open. How are we supposed to be a part of the mission you've got going on? It's expensive to run some of these programs. There are only so many of us to get involved. How are you expecting us to do all of this? Or God, I'm tired. Everything seems to be draining my energy. I don't want to spend time with people right now. I don't want to go to Bible study. I just want to get into my pajamas. The kids can put themselves to bed tonight. I just want a nice big bowl of ice cream to get lost in that, and to get lost in that TV show I've been waiting to binge. Maybe it's the stress of the day-to-day. The, the job isn't going the way you'd hoped it would. Things break unexpectedly, and, and now you've got a bill you've, you're, you're not equipped to deal with. Sickness strikes you or a loved one, and there's nothing you can do about it but follow the advice of your doctors and hope and pray that things go well. I don't know what it is for you that's pushing you to your limits, but each of us have limits, and we know this. We know that there's only so much we can do because when we start trying to do more than we are able, we start to lose it. We can't keep all the ducks in a row in the way that we'd like to. We just, we just don't have the ability. And as life piles up and ministry overwhelms, all of it begins to feel impossible. How can God expect us to do all this stuff? How can he expect us to live with all of this struggle and pain and frustration? How can he expect us to be a part of this ministry in this way? It just, it just feels impossible. And man, it's, it's frustrating when we're asked to do the impossible. Whether it's finding an earring in the long halls of a high school, feeding over 5,000 people, being a part of the mission that God has called us and our church to, or even sometimes just making it through the day without falling apart and setting everything on fire. And as we sit in that, we ask the question, how can God expect me to do this? I can't follow his laws perfectly. I can't follow all the things that he wants of me perfectly. I'm not very good at loving my neighbor well. 
And man, I'm, I'm not even good at loving myself very well sometimes. So how am I supposed to do all of this? How am I supposed to be a part of his mission? How am I supposed to make it through the day? How am I supposed to meet your expectations? God, I'm a broken sinner. I'm a failure. I'm flawed and I'm embarrassed about it. How am I supposed to do all of this? Yeah, we can relate to Philip. Especially when Andrew pipes up. Hey, so I found this kid and he has some some loaves of bread and some pieces of fish. It's not going to feed everyone, but hey, it's something, right? Can you imagine, like, the look that Philip turned on Andrew at that moment in time? Like, for real, man? Anyone can see that it would take six months' worth of wages to buy enough food for all these people just to get a single bite. And you're coming up in here and suggesting we jack this kid's lunch so that we can take his couple loaves of bread and, and some fish and use that as a starting place? Like, get out of here, dude. What are you doing? Trying to show me up? And I get it. I get where Philip is at because I've been there. But what Philip failed to realize and what Andrew had apparently begun to grasp is that what is impossible for us is possible with Christ. God can do it. Philip doesn't realize that Jesus isn't expecting him to whip out a miracle. It's not like Jesus was sitting there going, well, you saw me turn water into wine and I've helped a few people uh, walk who used to be pretty lame. So now it's your turn. Show me how you're going to feed everyone, Philip. I get that sometimes, maybe more times than we want to admit, that's what it feels like. But church, friends, let us guard our hearts against taking more responsibility than God is giving us. He will never give us more than he can handle. Like Philip, we get more than we can handle quite a bit. But we never get more than he can handle. And when we start to act like we're the ones who are supposed to do the handling, we begin to put limits on God. Limiting God's ability to do what we ourselves or to what we ourselves are capable of doing is an easy trap to fall into. The trap of putting human limitations on a limitless God. When we confine what God is able to do to what we are able to do, then we have put God in a box. Which begs the question, what boxes have we put God in? What limitations have we put on him? What is it that we think he cannot do? Maybe we look at ourselves and think, I don't have the talent or ability of of that particular person, so so God would rather have a relationship with them or use them. I'm I'm not as desirable to him. I'm, I'm just kind of here. Why would God want to have a relationship with someone like me? And how... Could he use me in his mission? Maybe we look at our little church and think, this church is, is so small. It doesn't have all the resources, resources of some of the bigger churches, so why would God use us? Logically, the bigger churches have a higher ceiling for ministry, so God's probably going to use them more than he will a little congregation like ours. Friends, what lines have we drawn in the sand? What limitations have we put on God? Is it forgiveness? Do we struggle to think of God knowing all that we have ever done and then actually being able to forgive it? Do we wonder how he could deal with our brokenness? Do we think that God couldn't love someone as messed up and as dysfunctional as we are? When we think of putting limitations on the ability of our God, 
Let us remember this story of how he fed the 5,000. Andrew brings a boy before Jesus who has a couple loaves of bread and some pieces of fish. Our text tells us that Jesus took the bread, gave thanks, and he broke it, distributing it out to all who would receive it. The bread broken on this grassy field is a foreshadowing of the bread broken that night in the upper room. The night that Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper, the night that he was betrayed. The next day, Jesus would be declared guilty by a bribed mob. And as a result, he would walk up a hill with a cross on his shoulders, bearing not only the weight of the cross, but the sins of the world. And when he had reached Golgotha, the place of the skull, he was nailed to that cross and displayed for all to see. And there, hanging on that cursed tree, the Bible tells us that Jesus became sin for us. The perfect one, the Son of God, the only person in the history of the world who had never sinned, became sin for us. And there on the cross, Jesus paid the price for our sin by dying on it. There on the cross, the bread was broken. The bread broken on the grassy field overshadowed the bread, or foreshadowed the bread, the body that would be broken for all. And in this foreshadowing, we get a glimpse of the magnitude of our sins, like the crowd of 5,000 men and who knows how many women and children. And we think, how could one man's death, how could one man's broken body cover the sins of so many? The abundance of God's grace knows no end. When the crowd had eaten their fill, the disciples gathered up 12 baskets of leftovers. Jesus provided more than enough for all. God's grace is sufficient. Jesus did not die for the few. He died for all. And as we see with the five loaves of bread and the pieces of fish, God knows what he is doing. And he provides more than enough for everyone. This, this is our God. Though the feeding of the 5,000 was a foreshadowing of his death on the cross and the grace given out in abundance, at the time it took place, it met a tangible need of the crowd. They needed to eat, and there was nowhere else to get food, so though it held a deeper meaning, nobody there but Jesus recognized it. They were just thankful to get some food in their bellies, and they were amazed at how Jesus provided for their needs. And God still provides tangibly for us today. I remember walking back into that school. Some of the lights had been turned off, and it was getting a little creepy. As I approached the long hallway we had been running in, I remember praying that God would help me find the earring. I had just finished praying when I remembered that the earring would be shiny in the light. The carpet was brown, so there was no glare like there would have been on tile. So as I would enter a new area, I would turn on the lights and then look for a reflection. And sure enough, it wasn't long before I found my sister's earring. God can and does provide for our physical and emotional needs. He gives us wisdom and strength. He has given us the Bible, his word, full of instruction for how to live a full and meaningful life. For when we look at God's law, we realize that if everyone lived according to the Ten Commandments and the words of Jesus in the New Testament, we'd have a much safer and more prosperous society. 
God gives insight and direction. He gives us promise after promise, and He keeps His promises. God continues to provide for us today, sometimes miraculously, sometimes tangibly, and sometimes not in the way that we wanted. Jesus spoke before a lot of crowds, but He didn't feed every crowd. God's not necessarily going to respond to every situation in the ways that we would like him to. Hardship, sicknesses, struggle, and pain are part of life here in this broken world. And sometimes it's hard to understand why God lets us go through the things that he lets us go through. He could miracle up enough food to feed the massive crowd, but he couldn't intervene in my life. He couldn't stop this hard thing from happening to me. I get it. I really do. And I'm not going to pretend that I understand why God makes the decisions that he does. But when I look at Jesus and his ministry, I see it there too. Jesus didn't feed every crowd. He could have. He had the ability, but he didn't. God's not going to respond to every situation in the way that we would like him to. And so we have a question to answer. Will we stand in awe before the God who can? Or do we sit in frustration towards the God who didn't? Do we stand in awe before the God who is taking care of our most desperate need, the need we could do nothing about, the need for our sin to be atoned for, the need for forgiveness and being made right before God that we might spend eternity in for, with, forever in heaven with him? Or do we sit in frustration that he has let us go through hardships here in this broken world? As we face the struggles of life in this world, it can be tempting to think that God doesn't care about us, that, that we aren't important enough to be taken care of, that we don't measure up. If that is where you are today, if you are living overwhelmed by the hurts and pains of life and struggling with feeling abandoned or at least rejected by God, hear this. God couldn't love you more than he does right now, and he will never love you less. Jesus didn't feed every crowd. He isn't always going to act in the ways that we would prefer that he act. But our perception of his feelings towards us are not always 100% accurate. God knows you. He loves you. And he has provided for you. Surprising nobody, I actually do not have the superpower of finding things. I just know my kids. I know where they play where they absentmindedly leave things. Through asking the right questions and some in-depth knowledge about these wonderful young men that God has entrusted to Karen and I, it's not too hard to deduce where they might have left the items that have gone missing. And if I know my kids well enough to help them find what they are looking for, how much better does God know you? How much better does God know what you need and where you need help? You were created in his image. He has breathed life into you. You are precious to him. He has never left you and is ever walking beside you. God knows who you are and he knows what you need. He longs to be your support. He longs to be your strength and to cover you with his grace. As we close the sermon this morning, know that God loves you, that he has provided for you. That sometimes he works in miraculous ways on your behalf. And sometimes he lets you go through hardships. 
but that he never lets you go through them alone. He is with you always. This is our God. This is our provider. Let us live in the gospel as we rest in the abundance of his grace. What a fantastic, loving, gracious, and merciful God we serve. Amen.